So we're going to be looking at the last verses in Peter, the first letter of Peter. It's, uh, we've come to the end of the book, and what a joy it's been, what a journey it's been. So would you stand with me as we read uh, verses 13 and 14 of 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Father, we pray, just as we sang, that indeed you would plant your truth in our hearts. That makes all the difference. For the world, O oh Lord, in which we live is not favorable to the truth of the gospel. And we are indeed aliens in this world, as this letter keeps reminding us. And we don't want to be influenced by the world, but be an influence in this world. And that's only possible by your grace. So stamp your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated, beloved. This will be our last Sunday before my wife and I take our two-month leave. Um, and this sermon will be the last sermon in the series on First Peter. The first message I preached was preached on February 20th, twenty. 20. And then a few weeks later, March 15th to be exact, I preached from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, from my office here in the church. And Anna was taping me and later uploaded that message on the various platforms. Um, we were under lockdown and we didn't know what this whole thing about coronavirus was about. Now after one year and eight months, we're still battling COVID-19. And in dealing with the effects of COVID-19 and the sentiment that's prevalent in our time, especially as we see numbers rising again, the Delta variant, the protests, the anti-maskers and the anti-vaxxers and what is going on around the world and in other ways as well. It can be very discouraging. I went to the barber yesterday and he told me these words. He said, I'm happy today because I didn't listen to any news. He has a point. I've been saying it all along. Turn your TV off and turn your devices off and just take time to read God's word. Let it encourage you. Let it speak to you. There's nothing, nothing like the Bible. Nothing. God's word alone gives us courage. I really don't know where I'd be if it weren't for the courage and the strength that God's word gives so richly to his children. So today we're going to be looking at these last two verses of Peter's letter to the church in Asia Minor. It touched on the topic 
of greetings. Why does Peter add a greeting? Well, the obvious answer is, of course. He was saying goodbye. He was greeting. It's a polite thing to do. You just don't end a letter abruptly. Well, that's what I thought, but I know better. (laughs) As I mentioned last week, this letter was written by the scribe Silvanus. It was dictated by Peter, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit isn't concerned about being polite. He's concerned about truth, because truth sets us free. So it sets us totally free. Any cursory read of the epistles, and you will come across greetings over and over. In fact, Paul, on three different occasions, says these words, greet each other with a holy kiss. Greet each other with a holy kiss. And Peter, as we just read, commanded the believers to greet each other with a kiss of love. I may say that's pretty normal. Well, no, it isn't. How do we do that today? Because it's a command. It's a command. Think about it. It's not a suggestion. (laughs) It's a command. Why this emphasis on greeting with a kiss? What is Peter conveying with this command? What is Paul conveying? What is God's word telling us? about greeting each other with a kiss. How do we obey this injunction during COVID-19? First, I want you to notice something. In his greeting, Peter underscores sovereign election. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. Here we see Peter greeting the believers of his audience, Church of Asia Minor, on behalf of the church in Babylon. Now, what is the church in Babylon? I don't want to spend too much time on this. There's been a lot of debate. The early church fathers thought it meant Rome, and uh, modern scholars don't agree with that. They think it's actually a church, a Chaldean church, where Peter was visiting or he was residing for a while there. So one thinks it's figuratively, one thinks it's literally, basically. But for our purposes, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that Peter is saying without ambiguity that the believers in the city where he was, Babylon, and the the churches that he was writing to were chosen. Chosen. That's the point, chosen of God. Regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their where they lived, they were chosen of God. They were Christ's. And you may say, well, okay, well, this is an important truth for Peter because Peter struggled with this truth. He struggled after Pentecost. Before Pentecost, he really struggled. But after Pentecost, he continued to struggle. Just look at his uh, reluctance when it came to visiting Cornelius. Look at the letter of Galatians, and how Paul had to correct Peter publicly. He struggled for the longest time when it came to this truth. So for Peter to write this, the Lord had done a work in his life. 
to tell, show him that it wasn't only the Jews that God came to save through his son, Jesus Christ. But it was both Jews and Gentiles. And this, these words written by Peter brought solace. It brought comfort. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verses, verse 9 rather. Here we hear a song that John is hearing in his vision. And he hears these creatures, they're called, that surround the throne of the Lamb while the Lamb is seated on the throne. And this is what they sing. Revelations 5, 9 and 10. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals. For you were slaughtered. This is the only time in the Bible where you actually see this word. Not killed, but slaughtered. It's gory. It's bloody. Jesus died a bloody death. And you purchased people for God with your blood. But who did he purchase? It was the Jews. You purchased them from every tribe, from every language, from every people, from every nation. That's what John heard. And that was revolutionary for John because he was a Jew as well. You have made them into a kingdom and priests to our God. Wow. Not only the Levites were priests. Not only Israel is a kingdom. But now this, the church is a kingdom of priests. And they, the believers, will reign upon the earth. That's what John heard. And that's what Peter is reiterating when he says, chosen. Even a cursory read of Scripture will bring you face to face with the doctrine of sovereign election. What is it about? What is sovereign election? I've mentioned this many times, but for the benefit of those who are perhaps are here for the first time, it's this, that God chose his people from every language group in this world from every nation, to be his people. Sovereign election is unavoidable. And for many years, I glossed over the, the words chosen, election, predestined. I glossed over them because I could not bring myself to accept the doctrine of sovereign election. I was just like Peter. 37 years in the ministry, and I struggled with it. But God was so merciful with me as he was with Peter, as he is with all of us. And he later opened my eyes to this beautiful truth that God chooses those he saves. And now those of you who've been following this series will remember when I first spoke about election. It's in the opening verses of his letter. So Peter opens with election and he closes with election. He opens with, you are chosen. He closes with, you are chosen. The first verse says, to those who reside as strangers, scattered throughout, and these names the cities of Asia Minor, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Believers are chosen by God, not because they are deserving. God didn't look at John and said, John, 
I'm going to choose you because I see something good in you. Oh, we know from Scripture there's nothing good in us. We are totally depraved. There's not one good. Scripture says very clearly. It's pure grace. As the hymn reminds us, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. No one chooses to become a child of God. And no one deserves to be chosen by God. Those are the two truths we must always remember. No one chooses God because we're unable to. And no one deserves to be chosen. As Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, knowing brothers and sisters, beloved of God, that's why he chose us, his choice of you. He loved us. That's why he loved us. Never once in Scripture do we come across the words, you chose God. Never. It doesn't exist. There is verses where it speaks of us choosing whether we want to serve God. That's a verse to the people of God who had been chosen. And in the Old Testament, choose you this day whom you shall serve. That's Joshua speaking to God's people, the elect. But never do we see someone choosing God. Never. It's always God choosing his people. On one occasion, Jesus told his disciples, and there are many such verses like this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. What a powerful truth. Yes, Christ chose his bride out of this world. And there are many such like verses that convey this incomprehensible, because it's incomprehensible to us, this truth that is so life-transforming. But what I want to draw your attention to is the link in Peter's words, between election and his greetings. See, Peter's not simply saying, by the way, everyone here says hello. That's what we say when we write a letter or a text or an email. By the way, so-and-so say hello. You know, and that's it. He's not saying that. He is saying, you are chosen. The tr- Christians here are chosen. The church is a people that has been elected, chosen by God, not because he deserved it. And so this greeting is for the elect. So in his greetings, he underscores, he stresses, he's emphasizing election. He's not being polite, but he's reminding God's people they've been set apart. They've been called out of the world. They belong to God. They're no longer their own. The unsaved cannot appreciate greeting one another with this awareness. When someone doesn't know Christ, he'll simply say hi. And that's it. There's no connection. There's no bond. There's no awareness of this truth. But when Christians greet each other, my, this is the truth that comes out every time God's people come together in a home group, in a church setting like this, in a gathering, Wherever they are, when God's people come together, this awareness grips us. We've been chosen by God, and it's echoed over and over. So when you greet each other at the end of this gathering, that's what you're saying. This is what we're communicating to the invisible forces, the unseen 
forces, the good, the angels, the demons, they see that. And when they see us outside, when we greet each other, they see that we are elect. We belong to the Lord, called out to be his. Yes, the, our, Peter's greeting underscores sovereign election. First thing. Secondly, Peter's greeting underscores spiritual unity. She who is in Babylon, that's one church where he, Peter was writing from, chosen together with you, who was you, the church of Asia Minor, the cities we mentioned earlier, and so does my son Mark. Now Mark here is not really his physical son. Mark here is his spiritual son. Paul uses that same word about Titus and Timothy. So the truth that stands out here is oneness. So in his greetings, he is underscoring oneness in Christ. So not only are we elect, chosen by God, we're, but we're not disconnected. It's not that I'm chosen, you're chosen, we're all disconnected from each other. That is non-existent in the church of Jesus Christ. We're not marbles, as I've said many times in my messages. Peter is showing here that though physically separate, Babylon and these other churches, and these other cities rather, was distant, were distant from each other. But the believers were one. That's what the, the doctrine of the universal church is all about. The church of Christ is one. The church of Christ, whether it be here on earth or whether it be the one in heaven, both the glorified church and the one still being sanctified here on earth, and that's you and me, we are one. The oneness of this church is a unique oneness. It's a precious truth taught in scriptures. As believers, we're commanded to strive for the unity of the Spirit. This is an interesting uh, doctrine. However, this unity is not a union. Not a union. It's a work of the Spirit. I'm going to explain the difference. We cannot reproduce this unity. We can, by God's grace, uh, mortify our flesh so that it doesn't work against the unity of the Spirit. That's why we are to strive. We are to make sure that it is not impacted by fleshly behavior. Now let me make something perfectly clear when it comes to unity. The unity of believers mentioned in Scripture has nothing in common with ecumenism. I'm not sure if you've heard of this term. It's basically a movement in mainline Christian churches of trying to come together, putting aside their differences as much as possible, and working on what they have in common so that they can have a common front. Because many of these mainline churches are saying it's not good that as Christian churches, we are divided. Now, it seems very noble, but unity in Scripture is totally different. And as I explain to you what unity is, you will see that ecumenism, this, this movement that seeks to unify the churches, is not really according to the unity of Scripture. They have nothing in common. Jesus speaks of unity, and there are many passages, but I'm just going to briefly touch this. In John 17, 22, 23. This is the Lord's Prayer, by the way. This is the right prayer to be called the Lord's Prayer. And he's praying to the Father. It's his final days, just before he goes to the cross. And listen to these words. I encourage you to read the entire chapter, but 
Listen to this beautiful prayer in these two verses. And he's speaking to the Father, and he's speaking in the presence of the disciples, all right? Here we get to the heart of Jesus. The glory which you've given me, I also have given to them, so that they may be one. Now, notice that, that they may be one. It's the first mention of it. Just as, what? We are one. The Father and the Son are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. So that the world, notice the difference, the world, those outside of the church, may know that you sent me and that you loved them, believers, just as you loved me. This is so rich. I'm planning to do a series on John 17. So here we get a glimpse, as I said, into the heart of Jesus as he prays for his bride, his church, his elect. And as he prays for them, he's saying that he would reside in them, that they would be in him. That is remarkable. And that the entire chapter, in fact, is dedicated to the priestly prayer of, of, on behalf of the church, that they would be one with him. And the theme of election comes out, right? But these two themes, in fact, election and unity, like two strands woven in this prayer stand out. But notice Jesus does not ask his disciples to make unity happen. We can't. He doesn't say to the disciples, I want you to be one. He does say, I want you to love each other. I want you to go and preach the gospel. That's our responsibility. But we cannot create the unity that Jesus desires. This unity is something that the Father gives as a gift to the Son. It's a desire of the Son being expressed in prayer to the Father. And the Father's listening, and he's saying, I'm going to make this happen because I love my Son. The unity is the same as the one that exists between the Son and the Father. Now tell me, can we reproduce that? There's just no way. This is purely a supernatural unity. So all my good intentions of trying to create, bringing churches together and all that, that is not what it's talking about here. This is something totally different, the unity that Jesus speaks of here. The Father will not fail his Son. The unity desired by the Lord will happen, and it does happen. But how does it happen? When the Holy Spirit regenerates an individual, when new birth takes place in the life of a dead, lost, blind sinner, he is now begins to experience, by divine grace, oneness. And that oneness then is perfected in him or in her by the Holy Spirit as he sanctifies us. So the more I'm sanctified, the more I sense my bond with you. The more I love you. See, when I first came to Christ, I was amazed that he loved me. 
But I've grown in my faith and in my understanding of who he is. I've grown in my love for the brethren. I've grown in my understanding that we are one. That I'm going to be with you throughout eternity. That what we're going to be talking about 100 years from now will not be coronavirus, but how God sustained us through this period. And how his word was precious to us. How we prayed one for another. How we shared the gospel. We are going to highlight the unity that the Father gave the Son as a gift. How wonderful. This is what Peter is underscoring with his greeting. Not only is the church elect, but the church is also one. The gifts are of the Spirit. The fruit is of the Spirit. And the unity is also a work of the Spirit. And it will happen regardless of what the enemy seeks to do in the church. He can bring in divisions. He can throw weapons. He can throw his arrows, his flaming arrows at the church. At the end, the church will be preserved as one. It will be presented blameless in the presence of God with exceeding joy as one bride. Not a divided bride, but as one bride. It's wonderful. The new birth makes it all happen in the individual, and then the Holy Spirit sanctifies us so that the truth of Psalm 133 is manifest in the church. Now, there are moments when we experience this even more than others. There have been moments in my life I felt the bond with the church, and there are moments I felt disconnected. And some of you, perhaps at that point right now, that you feel disconnected. It's not what you feel. It's what truth is. Truth always goes ahead of feelings. Look at what Psalm 133 says. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard as on Aaron's beard, the oil which ran down upon the edge of his robes. So David takes the anointing that happened to this high priest called Aaron. And he draws a metaphor. From that experience that Aaron had, he draws a metaphor and he looks at God's people and says, this is what unity is like. It's like Aaron being anointed and the oil, which represents the Holy Spirit, comes down his face, down his beard, down his robes, right to the edge of his robes. So that the Christians are one supernaturally. Just like they are regenerated supernaturally. They are sanctified supernaturally. It's a work of God. Now there is my part, as I said, because Paul does speak about striving for the unity of the Spirit, which means that I mortify the deeds of my flesh so that the work of the Spirit in me comes out and I serve and I obey and I love and I share the gospel and I speak well of my brothers, and I esteem them, and so forth. So Peter, with this greeting, is underscoring the unity of the church. So he underscores sovereign election, and then he underscores spiritual unity. And then thirdly, he, in his greetings, he underscores full acceptance in Christ. Greet one another 
with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Now in the New Testament, we read about an incident where we see kissing amongst brothers in a very dramatic way. All right? It's an incident in the life of Paul when he calls for the elders of Ephesus. He's in Miletus. He's about to board ship, and he goes, before I take the ship, I want to speak to my brothers, the elders. And he calls them, and they travel all the way to Miletus. He gives them instructions. And then after giving them instructions, we read in Acts 20, verse 36, these words. When Paul had said these things, instructions and warnings, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. They just kissed him over and over. I'm not sure if you ever had such an experience. I have with uh, the people of God. I, I remember when I was in Italy, I felt like a foreigner. I was alone. And um, Rome was a beautiful place. That's where I did my studies. But then they sent me to Sicily, and they sent me to, like I said many times, to the warmest place on the face of the earth, according to me. And when I was there, these brothers, these Sicilian brothers, they couldn't stop hugging me, kissing me, and letting me know how precious I was to them. They didn't know me from Adam. Their love broke me. I remember they would take me from, this was, most of the times, used to do this, I don't think they do it now, they would take me from underneath my arm, but they would do it not once, but twice, over and over, and they would say, come John, let's go for a coffee, let's go. Let's go and pray. Let's just spend some time together and talk about the Lord. They would do this over and over with me. I was an introvert. I was very much to myself. I was a bookworm. I used to love reading. But I didn't understand loving the brethren. It was Sicily that the Lord used to show me, John, they love you. Not because you deserve it. They accept you. Not because you're a special guy. In fact, you have a whole bunch of rough ages. In fact, if I look back the way I was then, my early years of ministry, I still can't understand why they loved me like that. Because I would never love me the way they loved me. The command to kiss one another is repeated throughout the New Testament, as I said. And when they kissed Paul, it was more than, we're going to miss you. It was more than that. It was how we thank God for you, how we appreciate you, how precious you are to us, my brother. It's divine love that cannot be explained with words. It means acceptance, appreciation, love. Sadly, COVID-19 has hindered us from expressing this. I'll be very frank with you. When I meet people, I don't know how to greet them anymore. Some I hug, some, very few I kiss, some I do the bump, some I give the elbow, some I keep at a distance. Everybody should wear a tag so I know how to greet them. I don't know what to do. I really don't. That was never a problem. The Lord in His sovereign will has removed from us this something that is so precious. I miss it. I miss it dearly.
Jesus said these words to his disciples, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Could you imagine anybody walking by the beach that day, and they're working, someone's fishing, others, and they're just looking at these people on the shore, kissing the brother. Say, what is going on? What is this? When I go out of my way to greet my brother, I am telling my brother, God has accepted me and I accept you. That's what we're saying. I will love you because he loved me first. I will accept you because he's accepted me. He took me as a sinner who deserved wrath. I deserved judgment. He went out of his way for me. I will go out of my way for you. That's what it means. Just imagine for a moment attending a gathering of the early church. You'd walk in, and the first thing that would strike you is that there was a wealthy man and there was a poor man, a penniless Christian. There were masters and there were slaves. There were men, there were women. That never happened. There were the educated, the scholarly, and you had the illiterate. See, because that world was a world of class. You belonged to a class. You stuck stuck with your class. If you're rich, you stick with the rich. And if you're poor, you stick with the poor. If you're a Samaritan, you stick with Samaritans. And if you're a Jew, you stick with the Jews. But in the church, you saw Samaritans and Jews and Gentiles. That was the first church, first century church. So you would see a Jew, a Christian Jew, kissing a Christian Gentile. You would see a wealthy Christian kissing a penniless one. You would see a scholarly Jew kissing an illiterate Christian. You would see a Samaritan kissing a a Jew. Or a Jew kissing a Gentile. That was church. And the people couldn't understand it because class was so important in the Roman world. That's why Paul, Peter says, kiss one another. Just don't go there and stick with your clique. Don't be cliquish. Not in the church. There are no places, there's no place for cliquish Christianity. Go out of your way and greet someone who's completely different from you and make that person know, if he's a Christian, that he's welcome, that he's accepted. The believers in Sicily did that with me. Of course, it impacted me. It changed me. I, to this day, I had never seen that kind of love. You know, I, I read that during the gatherings of the early church, they would actually stop sometimes and just say, let's greet each other. And the wealthy man would go right to the penniless and, say, and greet him. These were small gatherings where they knew each other. They met in homes. Imagine how the Roman world would look at this. That's why they would accuse Christians of orgies because they used this custom in the church to condemn Christianity. Of course, it didn't last long and Christianity eventually thrived and the Roman world fell apart. That's why in Paul's letters, you never see Paul 
land-based in slavery. He, he never goes, slavery is wrong. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He'll say to slaves, slaves, obey your masters. And then he'll turn around to Philemon, who was a slave owner, and say, receive Onesimus, who I met in prison. And he, Paul, of course, was a free Roman citizen, and Onesimus was not, and Paul led him to Christ, and he calls him my son. Now receive him as you would receive me. He's telling Philemon, kiss him. When he comes, don't remind him of the wrong that he did. Don't remind him that he ran away and he cost you whatever he cost you. Remember, you owe me your life because I brought the gospel to you. Remember what Christ has done for us. That's how Paul changed the world. It was the gospel. He didn't become an activist. I don't understand Christians becoming activists. I don't understand it. Because that's not what we are called to do. He fought for truth with the weapon of choice. The gospel. The gospel. And so what we have here in his greetings is Peter underscoring sovereign election, spiritual unity, and full acceptance. Full acceptance with a kiss. So no one felt out of place. No one felt, oh, I'm a poor man. I'm a slave. I'm a Gentile. I'm a woman. I don't belong Everyone who was born again knew that they were priests unto God, a kingdom of priests, and everyone felt honored and everyone accepted each other. What a, what a miracle. What a miracle in the Roman world. The Roman world was completely different. You're poor, stay with the poor. I'm rich, I stay with rich. That's why when you read 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, do you understand what you're doing by sticking only with your kind when you're having Holy Communion? Do you understand why the Lord is coming with his rod and disciplining? Because you are one bread. You are one body. It's remarkable. So then we are to accept each other. Now, let me bring up this point. Because right now, the evangelical church is in turmoil I mean, a turmoil that I've never seen before. Are we to accept everyone in a sweeping way, regardless of what they believe, regardless of how they behave? There are many churches that are saying exactly that. They're saying, and this is what is happening right now in the evangelical church. Many Christians are strongly strongly in favor of accepting anyone who identifies with the LGBTQ community. And their reasoning is simple. The Lord has accepted us, true, and because he's accepted us and he died for us who are sinners, then we are to accept everyone who am I to judge them. And there may be someone here that actually believes in that. Recently, a church 
in Atlanta called North Point, and you could view this video somewhere on YouTube. Don't ask me where. Anyways, baptized an openly gay person. This individual shared his testimony, and then at the end he thanked the church, North Point, an evangelical church, a Baptist church of Southern Baptists. Thank the church for accepting him as he is a gay Christian. The video disturbed me deeply. Is this the acceptance that we read about in scriptures? Well, of course not. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth because they were of the belief that you just accept everybody because God accepted us and we accept everybody. But Paul writes this. I actually wrote to you to not associate with any so-called brother, someone who claims to be a Christian. If he is a sexually immoral person, if he's a greedy person, if he's an idolater, if he's verbally abusive, habitually drunk, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a person. So what is Paul saying here? Yes, there's full acceptance for the body of believers in Christ. But when someone behaves in a certain way, which clearly what it says here, not something beyond this, what it says here, we are not to accept that person. We can't. Acceptance, according to Scripture, is never sweeping and unconditional. We never see that in Scripture. We are to accept everyone who is born again regardless of status, regardless of their race or whatever else, but we are not to unconditionally accept everyone, especially when it comes to behavior and the way they behave and in the way and what they believe. God is very clear on homosexuality. His word is clear on sexual immorality, on anger, on gender change, on greed, on pride, on lying, on stealing. I've said it before. God's word is clear. When we water down God's word on those issues where God's word is clear, we create a great deal of confusion. That's what happened in the church of Corinth. They were just confused. Here was this man who was sleeping with his mother's, his father's wife, his stepmother, and they said, well, he's a Christian. He believes that Jesus died. Let's just accept him. Let's just, he's one of us. Whatever. And Paul says, what are you doing? And he corrects it. So whenever there is behavior that is sinful in the life of a Christian, we're just not to stand by and just let it happen. That's why membership is so important, church membership. Because as a member, you're saying, I make myself accountable to the body of believers. And I know that I have my part to play in the life of fellow believers. Not only when it comes to behavior, but when it comes to teaching. Look at 3 John chapter 1. There's only one chapter. Verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you, John says, and does not bring this teaching. So it's not only behavior, 
but his doctrine and teaching. Do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. Notice the word greeting comes up. Because greeting is more than just simply, hey, hi. It's more. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. What's John saying? You can't say hello to a JW? If you meet a JW, I, I can't say hello to you. Doesn't say that. Doesn't mean that, obviously. It means, because the church was in the, would gather in the home. So if believers would receive this and acknowledge him and accept him with his false teaching, it would impact the entire body that was gathering in that home. So when it comes to doctrine, we need to be careful. And when it comes to behavior, we need to be also aware. So that's all it means. So if I communicate sweeping, unconditional acceptance to someone who lives in a sinful lifestyle or embrace a false doctrine and say nothing about it, well, that false doctrine will continue. That sinful lifestyle will continue. That person will be deceived. And I'm participating in his evil deeds. I'm an accomplice. I'm making it happen. I'm enabling him. Our acceptance of others must be based on the word of God and not on this pie in the sky that says, oh, we can't judge. I can't judge. I'll just, we'll just accept everybody. And, and that's what's happening in the church today. We just accept everybody. And especially the LGBTQ, they want to be accepted by the church. I don't understand. There's so many other organizations that could accept you, right? But they fight for the church. They fight. They're insistent. And there's inside the church people who are fighting vehemently for the church to accept the LGBTQ agenda. And also to not make it important that there be sound doctrine. It doesn't matter what we believe, as long as we just believe in Jesus type of thing. Very vague, vacuous teaching. This acceptance does not please the Lord. He only pours his peace, as Peter says, on those who are elect, who are one, and who accept, who are fully accepted in the beloved, and therefore accept each other with a holy kiss. Now, how do we do that today? Since we cannot actually kiss each other. There are some believers that don't mind, and they appreciate. Others are more um, reticent, and that's okay. Please, I'm not saying anything. That's okay. So how do we do this? How do we... We can communicate these truths regardless. Even if I can't kiss a brother, I still can let that brother know that he and I are one in Christ, that he and I are elect, that we belong to the Lord, that he and I are beloved of the Lord, we've been accepted by him, and that I accept him and he accepts me. Which brings me to... I'm going to segue <laughs> to this point... When it comes to different views, we must be very careful. A lot of Christians that are getting really upset over the mask, over the vaccine, it's becoming really disturbing. I'm not on Facebook, but it, you know, sometimes my wife shows me things and I, others send me stuff. And there's this fight against vaccines. And now, especially because just, there are many people who have been vaccinated, like in Israel, and COVID is you know, ripping through Israel, and other, now there are other cases. 
and uh, many more cases. And so the whole concept of the vaccine will protect us is not true. Well, I've, always, I've often told, nothing can protect us. It's God that keeps us alive. And our days are numbered, according to Psalm 139, and that's it. It's not a vaccine that keeps me alive. It's not the mask that keeps me safe. But there are people who are, have an opinion, and you, you can have an opinion. In Romans chapter 14, we're told to accept one another and accept the one who is weak in faith, but not to have quarrels, not to argue over opinions. You have your opinion on your mask? That's wonderful. You have your opinion on what to eat? You don't like chicken? You have an opinion. Wonderful. It's okay. One person has faith that he may eat all things, and the one who weak, is weak eats only vegetables. So vegetarians were existing even then, but for different purposes. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who doesn't eat meat, basically. And the one who does eat should not judge the one who eats. So I'm eating all meat, and I would look at someone who doesn't, and I would judge him. Or the one who doesn't would hold me in contempt. Oh, sorry, the one who would not eat would judge, and the other one would, who would eat would hold the other one in contempt. Uh, who are you to judge the servant of another? So here, judgment comes in. Wrong judgment. See, in 1 Corinthians, we are to judge. 1 Corinthians 5, here, we're not to judge. To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person values one day over another, another values every day the same. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So what is Paul talking about? Opinions. Secondary issues. There are many Christians that are making this, the, 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 the mask, the vaccine, really a primary issue. And they're creating a ruckus. I can't understand why many Christians are getting riled up about the vaccine, fighting against it. When it comes to lifestyle, when it comes to doctrine, then we have to align with God's word. Those are important. But when it comes to our own different opinions, we need to respect each other. We need to accept each other. We don't need to argue. A gospel-centered believer is not in favor of the mask, and he's not against the mask. A gospel-centered believer is not against vaccine, and he's not in favor of vaccine. You, none of you know my opinion on masks. None of you know my opinion on vaccines. You don't. You know why? Because I've never shared it. And I never will. I will not be brought down to that level to argue on secondary issues, on opinions. I will fight the good fight. That's what Paul said at the end of his day. I didn't waste my time with other fights. He could have been an activist. He could have fought many fights. He was powerful enough and he was smart enough to do that. He laid aside all other fights and he focused on one fight, the fight of the gospel, the good fight. That's what we're called to do, Church of Jesus Christ. Let's not argue on the vaccine or on masks, please. This is how the early church thrived, by staying focused. By staying focused. All opinions, let them, let them be. They're opinions. And we're not going to remember them 100 years from now when we stand before our Lord. We're going to remember the fact that we fought the good fight that we greet each other with this awareness that we are chosen 
by God. That we are one in Christ and that we are accepted in the beloved and therefore I accept you because of Christ. Even if I cannot kiss you, as believers, this is what we underscore. Sovereign election, spiritual unity, and full acceptance. And those of you who do not know the Lord, may this day be a day of difference for you. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you so much for your wonderful word, for the clarity of your word, for how it brings light in places where there is darkness and, and cloudiness. It just dispels wrong thinking and reminds us of what is truly matters. Thank you for the green that you've given the church, the way we can express our love one for another, our oneness, and the fact that we are your people, that we've been chosen by you. Lord, what an amazing, amazing truth. What, what a gospel. Thank you, for it changes lives. It transforms us. It makes us into the image of Christ. And we look forward to the day when we'll stand before you, rejoicing, complete as the bride of Christ. Until then, you are sanctifying us and you are perfecting us to become more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We rejoice. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the joy of ministering your word today and for every eager heart. And for those who do not know you, draw them to yourself, I pray. Lord, give them the gift of new birth. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.